course, we're moving forward in our study of Colossians. Um, And, uh, you know, I've pointed out each week that the overarching theme of this letter, uh, the theme that kind of pulls it all together into a unit, is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. Now, we've seen his introductory remarks. We've seen the prayers that he offered up for the believers in Colossae. And we pointed out that his prayers really uh, revolved around the completeness of Christ's provision. Uh, He wasn't praying that Christ would, uh, that uh, God or Christ would provide them with anything they didn't already have. They prayed for an increased uh, wisdom and knowledge, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. And growth in our Christian life doesn't involve God giving us anything else that he didn't give us at the moment of salvation. Growth in our Christian life involves coming into a deeper understanding and appropriation of what we've always had as Christians. Everything we, we, when we placed our faith in Christ, everything necessary for life and godliness was given to us. And it's there. But it's only as we come to see who we are and see what we have that we're really going to begin to benefit from it. And seeing who we are starts with really seeing Christ for who he is. Because our life is hidden with Christ. That's where it's at. And we won't find it anywhere else. Now, Paul's final remarks in the section of the letter dealing with his prayers for the Colossians sets the stage for this next section. And the next section of the letter, starting in verse 13 and going down through verse 23 looks at the sufficiency of Christ which is evidenced by his preeminence over all things. The fact that Christ is sufficient for you and me and for our Christian life is found in the fact that he's over everything. There is no one that can possibly add to what he has provided. Now, Some years ago, when I was teaching through this at the school, I had a student say, well, you know, comment that when we got into this section, it just seemed abstract. Now, I don't see where it's abstract because abstract has to do with theoretical. This isn't anything theoretical. But I think his point was, I just don't see the practical side of it. And yet... I think the big mistake that a lot of believers make, they want to jump to the section of the letter that talks about our lives and see, you know, how can I fix my life? And it never gets fixed because they're skipping over what's so critical. Paul always starts with foundational truth. These verses we're about to look at are incredibly foundational. And a lot of it's 
you know, if we go back to when God created us, there in the Garden of Eden, He created us to be in the center of our lives. We were created to be God-centered beings. But Adam and Eve made a, a choice there in the garden. They made a choice to put self above a God. And ever since then, everyone born into this world has come into this world very self-centered. And unfortunately, that self-centeredness follows us even into Christianity. Again, why is it that people always want to jump to the part that talks about them? <laughs> and what's going to fix their life? Is it not that they're self-centered? That they want Christianity to be about them? Now, God is at work seeking to bring us into a Christ-centered life. And if Christ is in the center of your life, if Christ is in the center of my life, we also will be very God-centered. <laughs> because if you look at the life of Christ when He was here on earth, everything revolved around the Father, around His will. But it involves bringing Christ into our life. Now it would be nice if it was just, you can move from a self-life to a Christ-life. Boom, you know. One day self's in the center, the next day Christ is in the center. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that easily. And a lot of it's because we tend to compartmentalize our lives. You know, there's the spiritual part of my life. There's the work part of my life. There's the family part of my life. There's the part of my life with friends. And, you know, we have all these different areas of our life. And we come into salvation with self being in all of these. And what God does as He works in our lives is little by little, he brings Christ into different areas. Little by little. You know, he'll, he'll deal with one area of our life and we'll come to see our desperate need of Christ there. And generally it'll be through a lot of failure, a lot of frustration. But we'll come to see our need of Christ. And little by little, he'll come in. And some days he'll be there and some days we'll let self come back. And, and the more we grow in the Lord, the more drastic that difference becomes. Jonelle and I have talked about the fact that the more you grow in the Lord, the more schizo you look. <laughs> because you can be, you know, have your eyes on Christ one moment and be one way and then let self come forward. And you'll be drastically different. But, he, you know, we'll bring him into one area of our life, and then another area of our life, then another area of our life, and then another area of our life. 
Now, we would love to come to this point where Christ fills our whole life. Probably ain't going to happen this side of eternity. In First uh, John chapter 3, we're told that when Christ returns, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. When we finally are focused 100% on Christ, we'll be transformed. But the degree to which we're focused on him here in, in this time, uh, lifetime will have a lot to do with the degree to which we're conformed. Now, the fact that we compartmentalize our lives, again, I think, helps us understand certain things about ourselves and others. You know, at times, people will say, well, so-and-so's one way at church and another way at home. He must be faking it at church. Maybe he is, but maybe at church that is a part of his life that he has really brought Christ into. But he hasn't recognized he needs Christ in his life at home or on his job or in his marriage or at school. And we can be very different in different settings because some areas we have come to see our need of Christ in and have brought, you know, put our focus on Him in those areas, but there are other areas we haven't. And I'm going to tell you something. Whatever you see as your greatest strength is probably your greatest weakness. Because it's in the area where you feel your greatest strength that you're less apt to have your eyes on Christ. You're most apt to, to rely upon yourself. That's why I think a lot of times God doesn't oftentimes use people in the area of their greatest talents. Because in their greatest talents a lot of times they're relied on themselves. It's interesting. I don't see teaching as a talent I have. I see it's something of my spiritual gifting and it's very much about I know I can't do it apart from him. I used to tell my students four years of Bible college my great fear was I was going to have to publicly give my testimony as a senior. That's how fearful I was of public speaking. And I'm still not one who just wants to get up in public. This is an area that the Lord keeps me on my knees about. The areas that come naturally to me are not the areas the Lord has used the most. Because they're the easiest areas for me to rely on myself. That's why this section that we're moving into is so foundational. You know, the letter, I'll remind you, was prompted by those who challenged the sufficiency of Christ. They were saying that you needed other things for life and godliness. And Paul starts at the root of the problem. They were either failing to see who Christ truly is, or they were losing sight of it. One or the other. Back in verse 10, Paul spoke of 
praying for them to increase in their knowledge of God. And since Christ is the revelation of God, any increase you or I have in our knowledge and understanding of God will start with our knowledge and understanding of Christ. Now, knowing Christ is much more than knowing facts about Him. But it starts with the facts. And so, hopefully, this section is going to give us facts about Him, which will give us a desire to get to know Him in an ever-deepening, more intimate way. Now, we gave you that little bookmark. I'd, again, recommend you put it in your Bible, read it from time to time. It's an excerpt from a kind of a longer quote that comes out of the Principles of Spiritual Growth. And I want to read a little bit of the context in which it's given. Since God has a natural law in force to the effect that we are conformed to that on which we center our, our interest and love. Hawthorne brought out this fact in the great stone face. And two, think of, the, of Germany some years ago, full of little Hitlers because of fanatical uh, devotion to a second-rate paper hanger. Here in America, now this was written years ago, it says, Here in America, radio, TV, and movies contribute to a rising generation of young people who try to emulate their entertainment heroes. And what of the believer? If we are attracted to this present evil world, we become increasingly worldly. If we pamper and live for self, we become more and more self-centered. But when we look at Jesus Christ, we become more and more like him. Norman Dowdy writes, If I am to be like him, then God in his grace must do it. And the sooner I come to recognize it, the sooner I will be delivered from another form of bondage. Throw down every endeavor and say, I cannot do it. The more I try, the farther I get from his likeness. What shall I do? Ah, the Holy Spirit says. You cannot do it. Just withdraw. Come out of it. You have been in the arena. You have been endeavoring. You are a failure. Come out of it and sit down. And as you sit there, behold him. Look at him. Don't try to be like him. Just look at him. Just be occupied with him. Forget about trying to be like him. Instead of letting that fill your mind and heart, let him fill it. Just behold him. Look upon him through the word. Come to the word for one purpose, and that is to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred word, but come to it to meet the Lord. Make it to be a medium, not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. Behold the Lord. If you take that to heart, it'll transform you. I used to tell my students, I have not met one person in my life who really came to know Christ in a deep intimate, personal way that was not changed by him. He will transform you and he will do it from the inside out. But it starts with making him our focus. We want to jump over and focus on what we should be doing rather than focusing on him.
Thank you. A big transforming point in my life was coming to realize that the Christian life is about me being focused on Christ. And when I find myself failing in certain areas rather than saying I need to work harder on those areas it pushes me back to the Lord Jesus Christ and I realize my failure in this area is because I'm not focusing on him in this area so with all that said let's move into this section of the letter and in this section of the letter, uh, Paul is going to set forth a number of very significant relationships that Christ has. And his first relationship is that of him uh, in relationship to the Father. He is the divine Son. Verse 13, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ, the beloved Son, is a direct relationship to God's gracious provision for us. And we're going to see as we go on, everything that God has provided for us is packaged in the Son. He is the source of all things. But he starts off by talking about Christ's relationship to our redemption and our forgiveness. And the word translated redemption has to, be, has to do with loosed by paying a price. We once were in bondage to sin. But we've been set free. We may not... Act like we're free a lot of times. We'll talk about that more as we get deeper into the letter. We may not look free. We may not even at times think we're free. But God says we are. Victory on, in the Christian life doesn't come from us being stronger than sin. It's learning to live in a realm free from sin. You don't have to be stronger than sin. You just have to live in the realm of Christ's freedom. But he has redeemed us. The word for forgiveness denotes a dismissal or, or uh, release. Our sins, we've been totally, our sins have been totally set aside. God no longer sees them when he sees us. Now, I think... Most, if not all, believers know this about Christ. But a lot of believers, this is as far as their knowledge of Christ goes. They know that he redeemed them with his blood. <clears throat> they know that it was his blood that purchased their forgiveness. But that's only a small part of who Christ is and what he has done. And because people have that limited view of Christ, they miss out on so much. And so Paul starts with that because that's where it all begins. 
We really can't get to know Christ in a deep, intimate, personal way until we have embraced him as our source of salvation. But we don't need to stop there. We need to go on to see with greater clarity who he is. And so, Paul goes on to address Christ's relationship to God the Father. He's talked about his relationship to our basic uh, entering into salvation. But his relationship to the Father, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, starting here in verse 15, we enter into a six-verse section of this letter that is put together in a way that has become known as the Christ hymn. There's a Christ hymn in Colossians. There's a Christ hymn in Philippians. And it's called a hymn because it is rhythmic prose and strophic arrangement. And I had to look up what on earth a strophic arrangement is. Uh, a strophe is a rhythmic system composed of two or more lines repeated as a unit. Now regarding these verses, F.F. Bruce writes, Certainly one cannot recognize here the established forms of either Hebrew or Greek poetry. So he says, what we see here is not poetic style. Not the way the Hebrews wrote poetry, not the way the Greeks wrote uh, poetry. But, you know, what is here is rhythmical prose. But it is rhythmical prose with a strophic arrangement such is found in much early Christian hymnody. As with the uh, Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. <clears throat> it is not of first importance to decide whether Paul is composing the words de novo or from scratch or reproducing an inspired composition already known to him and possibly to his readers and stamping it <clears throat> with his apostolic authority. So F.F. Bruce says the style we see in these verses fits with the style of early church hymns. He said, look, I don't know if Paul just decided to write in this style or he's bringing in a hymn. Personally, I think Paul is bringing in a hymn that was known to the Colossian believers. Because I think what he's doing here is drawing their attention back to the truths they already knew about Christ. But somehow we're losing sight of. These were truths that they had gathered together on many occasions and sung together. And maybe they're like a lot of Christians who grew up in the church and they sing hymns and they no more think about what they're singing. You just rattle those words off. In some cases, with certain songs, it's probably good they don't think about what they're singing. Because <laughs> there are some songs out there that have horrible theology. Thankfully, Dave gives a lot of attention to the theology. And so we really do need to think at times about what we're singing. But Paul, I think, draws upon this hymn to back up what he's saying here. 
You know, here's this hymn. Stop and think about what it's saying. Now, F.F. Bruce goes on to translate the hymn in this way, and I'll read it according to kind of his translation. He, who is the image of the invisible God, firstborn before all creation, because in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities and powers, They have all been created through him and for him. He is indeed before all things. And they all cohere in him. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Firstborn from the dead. That he might be preeminent in all things. Because in him it was decreed that all fullness should take up residence. And that through him God should reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him whether those on earth or those in heaven. So we want to take some time to look at this Christ hymn. And what it reveals to us. Now we won't get through the whole thing this week. We'll finish it up probably next week. But he starts out with a focus on Christ's position in relationship with God and his position in relationship to creation. And in relationship to God, we're told that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, W. Vine states that the word translated image involves the two ideas of one, representation, and two, manifestation. So, when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, it emphasizes the fact that Christ is a visible manifestation and a representation of God to mankind. Now, God is spirit and is not discernible with the physical senses. We know that God's omnipresent. He's here today. I can't see him. I can't feel him. You know, uh, I can't hear him with my ears. You know, I can't sense him with any of the physical senses. But Christ took upon himself humanity... So that he can reveal God to us. So that he could bring God down to a point where man could see him. And could relate more fully to him. I like what F.F. Bruce writes. He says, to call Christ the image of God is to say that in him the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested. And I like this little phrase. That in him the invisible becomes visible. In Christ, the invisible becomes visible. We're able to see with greater clarity what God is like. 
He is an accurate manifestation. He was then, he still is, an accurate manifestation of all that God is. And of course, there are other biblical passages that bear this reality out. In John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9, just hours before his betrayal, as Christ met with his disciples in uh, the upper room, he talks about leaving and going to the Father, and, and uh, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Christ's response was, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? He says, Philip, have you still not grasped who I am? And that if you see me, if you really understand me, you know, if you really know what I'm like, you know what the Father's like. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And then in 2 Corinthians 4 4, Paul says, in uh, whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So in relationship to God, he is a full and accurate manifestation of everything God is. Now next Paul addresses Christ's relationship to creation, the world and the universe around us. He says regarding that that he is the firstborn before all creation. In relationship to creation, he holds the position of firstborn. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses read Colossians 1.15, and they want to say that it's teaching that Christ was created. I don't know what they do with the next verse, uh, because the next verse kind of shoots that, that view down, but uh, that's what they want to hold to. And there are too many other passages which demonstrate the error of this thinking. Of course, you have the opening verses of John's Gospel, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Philippians 2, 5-7 through 7. Paul writes, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, and the form there has to do with a form that accurately reflects what one truly is intrinsically, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Here Paul says, look, prior to Bethlehem, Christ held a form that accurately reflected that he was God. Bethlehem was just where his humanity began. 
I guess technically it began nine months before Bethlehem. Uh, but, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it was not the beginning of his existence. So what on earth does it mean, firstborn? Well, Wayne House writes, firstborn suggests supremacy, not temporality. It has to do with the position in regards to creation. It doesn't have anything to do uh, with uh, him, you know, being uh, a created being. Um, you know, you've got to go back, I guess, to ancient culture and come to grasp what the term, the, the, the weight that the term firstborn carried. Firstborn was a very high position. It was the highest position within a family. Now, certainly in most cases it had to do with, with the birth order. But, you find like when, when um, uh, Esau sold his firstborn position to Jacob. He basically... Uh, gave away his position of, uh, of firstborn uh, for some lentils and bumped Jacob kind of into the firstborn position. When you get to Jacob uh, pronouncing his blessing on his sons prior to his death, you find that Reuben, who was his firstborn, gets bumped down the line to third position. Because of a sin he committed. He had sexual relations with his uh, father's concubine. And as a result, he lost his firstborn position. And Joseph's two sons moved up the line with Ephraim ending up in the firstborn position. So firstborn isn't just about birth. It's about the position you hold. And that's where, you know, in Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now Egypt predated Israel as a nation by many, many centuries. In what sense was Israel... God's firstborn. It had to do with the priority of position. And so Christ here is seen as holding that highest position over creation. His is the primacy of position. He's first in order, rank, and importance. And Paul goes on to spell out why. We're told, first of all, that in him all things were created, both in heavens, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now I realize that your translation may choose to translate the phrase, the Greek phrase, en autos, as by him. But there's good reason to believe it's better rendered in him. One of the primary reasons being that that's the way Paul normally uses it. Uh, Paul 
uses the words in Christ 76 times. He uses the words in him 20 times. And he uses the words to indicate that Christ is the embodiment of reality, whether of creation or of the redemption of mankind. Now later, Paul is going to make it clear that Christ was the agent that brought creation about. I think it seems out of place that within a sentence or so that uh, Paul is going to say the same thing twice. And generally this, this combination of Greek words is not used regarding the agency of somebody, what they did, but it's more of a location or a source. And so, really rendering this phrase in him carries a much stronger uh, weight than by him. As Wayne House writes, Christ was the location from whom all came into being and whom all creation is contained. Everything we see came out of Christ. He was its source. So he holds this primacy of position because uh, he is the source from which it came. And it says, you know, that in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth. Everything out there were sourced in him. Things that we can see, things that we can't see. Doesn't matter whether, you know, kingdoms and rulers and all that, they all had their beginning in him. It all is sourced in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He points out first, as I said, that he has primacy because everything was sourced in him, but he also does present him as the agent who brought him it all about. says they have all been created through him and for him. Now, the fact that it was created through him or by his agency is consistent, again, with what John wrote in the opening verses of his gospel. In, you know, that uh, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's also consistent with what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1-2 when he writes, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. But Christ's primacy of position doesn't even stop with him being, you know, the source and agent of creation it includes the fact that everything was created for him he is the beneficiary of creation Christ didn't simply bring all this into existence for someone else everything the whole universe rightfully belongs to Christ 
W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, Thus he is seen to be once the, at once the sphere, the agent, and the beneficiary of creation, which is stated to include all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or authorities. There is therefore but one link between God and creation, namely the Son. Now ever since the fall of man, Satan has been usurping Christ's universe, his world. But it still belongs to Christ. And one day he's going to take it back. Sunday nights we've been uh, with a small group I teach in Brandon we've been going through Revelation last week we got to Revelation chapter 19 where Christ takes it back and it doesn't take him long Peter in his second epistle tells us the only reason Christ hasn't done it so far is he's, he's patient and he's not desiring for any to perish he wants to give everyone an opportunity to respond to his provision but when he gets ready to take it back he'll take it back it won't take long just in a very quick moment it's interesting again we looked at chapter 19 and you see Christ returning his robes coated in blood and and an army following him in pure white garments I said it's kind of interesting because it paints the picture the army's along for the ride Christ doesn't need the army. He is the one that conquers his enemy. Single-handedly. He could have come down by himself and done it all. He just brings us along for the ride. And because... Creation took place in him, through him, and for him. He is before all things. And we'll stop here. We're out of time. We'll pick up on this transitional link next uh, week. It's transitional because it moves into his relationship to the church. It transitions from his relationship to God and to this creation we see to his relationship to the church. But again, it's so important for us to grasp how much more there is to Christ than so many envision. Here are these false teachers saying, you need something else. What else is there? This whole creation was sourced in Christ. It was all brought about by Christ. And we're going to see everything about the new life is sourced in Christ. And therefore, he needs to be our focus. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. And it will change everything. It really will. Keep your eyes on him. And I guarantee you, if you keep looking at him, it won't happen quickly, but it will happen. You'll gain his mind. You'll gain his heart. And gradually you'll gain his ways. And it will transform. And every area, every compartment of your life that you bring him into, he will change.
again, not overnight, not instantly. Because it takes time to get to know him in all those areas. But he will transform you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, he's so much more, Father, than we so often think of. We think of him as our Savior, as our uh, ticket into heaven. But do we really, really think about the fact that everything in this universe around us, everything on this planet that we walk on, it was all sourced in him and created by him. How could anybody ever add to what he has done? Lord, may he become our focus in the days and years ahead. And Lord, may your spirit, little by little, transform us into his image. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.